Hello and welcome. This is a very short podcast lecture and I'm going to break this lecture down into a couple of podcasts because there's quite a lot for this week, Topic 8, Defences to Negligence. Uh, so this one, we're going to focus particularly on contributory negligence. Now, at law, there's a number of ways a defendant is able to defend an action of negligence. They can show an element of the tort is missing, just like if one of the ingredients for a cake is missing, you have no cake. The other way that you can defend an action is to raise a recognised defence at law. Now, these defences can be either total defences or partial defences. They may have the effect of reducing the culpability or blameworthiness of the defendant by proportionally distributing blame or liability between the plaintiff and the defendant. Or you can raise a defence that may be a complete defence, and that completely defends the action. Now, a good example of that is Section 5L of the Civil Liability Act, which I'm sure you'll be well familiar with. So I thought it best to break this down into bite-sized chunks. And in this lecture, I'm going to cover contributory negligence, which is both a partial and under Section 5F, S, sorry, a total defence. In the next podcast, I'm going to be covering uh, the idea of intoxication as a defence. And I'm also going to cover obvious risk, volenti, and uh, illegal acts and good Samaritans. So this one will just focus on contributory negligence. Now it's important to note that each of these defences are matters of what we call strict pleading. Now you'll do more of this when you get to the subject of civil procedure, but what we mean by that is that in the court documents that parties have to file in these cases, if you want to rely on a defence such as contributory negligence, you must plead it. And that means you must raise it in your court documents. You can't simply rely on the court to make the finding. Uh, the defendant bears the onus of proof in establishing their defence, so improving the elements of that defence. Now, contributory negligence is the most common defence that you're going to see in relation to the tort of negligence. By definition, contributory negligence is a failure by the plaintiff to take reasonable care for his or her own safety that contributes to the damage or harm they ultimately suffered. So it is the culpability or responsibility, blameworthiness of the plaintiff in departing from the standard of a reasonable person in taking care for their own safety or prevention of loss. Now, finding of contributory negligence results in the liability being apportioned by the court between the plaintiff and the defendant. And this is done in percentage terms and it reduces the award of damages accordingly. Now, prior to apportionment legislation, contributory negligence used to be a complete defence at common law. So therefore, even if you were found to be only 2% guilty of contributory negligence, you would lose your whole case. Well, the legislature saw the uh, manifest unjustness of such a situation as this. And in the 1940s and 60s, there was legislative reform that brought in what we call apportionment legislation. Uh, to have a look at what this looks like, and you do need to become familiar with it, have a look at Section 9 of the Law Reform Miscellaneous Provisions Act of 1965, New South Wales. This act in this section allows the proportionate liability or apportioning of that liability based on respective fault between plaintiff and defendant. Now, the way this operates is that it enables a court to weigh and apportion the blameworthiness of plaintiff and the defendant to the ultimate harm that is caused. The plaintiff's whole damages, except for their legal costs, are accordingly reduced by the proportion of the plaintiff's own negligence. 
each finding of contributory negligence in a case is not binding in terms of precedent on other cases. And that's because essentially it's a fact-sensitive inquiry as to apportioning liability. Apportioning responsibility of the parties in contributory negligence is, as Dominic Villa states, a broad evaluative judgment that turns on the relevant facts of each case and is therefore difficult to disturb the apportionment on appeal. So whilst it doesn't stand for a precedent that you had a certain percentage finding of contributory negligence in one case to another, equally it's hard to overturn that finding of fact on appeal and it's very seldom that appellate courts will actually uh, disturb contributory negligence findings because they are essentially findings of fact and not usually errors of law. However, the legal test for determining contributory negligence is a matter of law and it is an objective prospective test of the reasonable person. It is not what the actual plaintiff appreciates but what the reasonable person in the plaintiff's particular position should have appreciated prospectively. As Joslyn and Berryman and Allen and Chadwick affirm, the particular idiosyncrasies of the plaintiff are not taken into account by the court when determining contributory negligence. It is an objective test. So much is also reflected in the wording of Section 5R, Subsection 2A of the Civil Liability Act. So do have a look at that section. That section explains that there are two requirements in order to establish contributory negligence. First, that the same principles that determine whether a defendant is negligent apply in determining whether a plaintiff has failed to take reasonable care for the purposes of contributory negligence. And secondly, that the standard of care is that of the reasonable person. Now, the standard of care in contributory negligence is, again, a prospective objective standard, and it's one of the reasonable person. See Jocelyn and Berryman, Alan and Chadwick. This means that we don't take into account the subjective qualities of the plaintiff, such as the plaintiff's uh, particular circumstances, if they were ill or if they were tired or um, particular characteristics of that plaintiff in those circumstances. Now, in Allen and Chadwick, the court explained this requires an evaluation of a relative risk in a given situation by the exercise of a reasonable choice between alternate courses of action. That may include matters of objective fact, personal to the plaintiff, as well as the external environment. But subjective characteristics of the plaintiff, which might diminish his or her capacity to make a reasonable evaluation of the relative risks in light of those facts, are immaterial to the evaluation. Now, Alan and Chadwick's an interesting case because they found that there was no contributory negligence in relation to uh, that matter because the plaintiff at the time, when assessed in terms of a reasonable person's response, made the decision that they, the court, High Court felt was a reasonable response. Uh, but the subjective qualities of the plaintiff, namely that she was a young pregnant woman who was in a remote location, were not to be taken into account subjectively in determining her response. It's an interesting case and well worth a read. Now, this is true in terms of this objective perspective standard when we talk about contributory negligence, but there is a notable exception in this regard. And you'd expect that from the common law, wouldn't you? And that applies to the standard of care and how this works when children are involved and we're considering contributory negligence for children. So, um, 
we'll talk about that in just a moment. But before we do talk about that, the next thing I want to mention is that as a matter of law, the plaintiff's failure to take care for their own safety or well-being or to prevent loss doesn't have to actually have caused the accident. So the other aspect of contributory negligence is the causation part, but it must be causally related to the damage the plaintiff suffers. Now, the plaintiff's own negligence may factually have been causative of the accident or the damage that occurred, and it must be within the scope of the risk created by the defendant also. Okay, so what do we mean by this? Well, in the case of Jones and Livox Quarries Limited, the court explained this concept well. The plaintiff in that case was told by an employer not to ride on the tow bar of a truck due to the risk of falling off or falling into the moving parts of the machinery. The plaintiff ignored that risk warning and continued to ride on the tow bar. Another vehicle collided with the truck rear and that caused the plaintiff to be crushed between the two vehicles. Now, the defendant understandably argued contributory negligence by the plaintiff, but the plaintiff argued that the plaintiff's only negligence related to the falling off the tow bar, not to the crushing injury that ultimately resulted. The Court of Appeal rejected this argument and found that the crush injury was exactly within the scope of the risk that the defendant had warned of, noting that the plaintiff had suffered an eye injury, had the plaintiff suffered an eye injury from a negligent shooting whilst riding on the tow bar, that would be beyond the scope of the risk that the defendant was responsible for. But the plaintiff's riding on the tow bar would, um, in those circumstances, not be contributory negligence, but in this instance, it certainly was because that was within the scope of the possible circumstances that could occur. So what we're seeing in terms of scope of liability is very similar to the idea in March and Stromer. You don't have to actually foresee the exact circumstances of how the accident occurs. You just have to foresee that the failure to take care by the plaintiff might materially contribute to or increase the risk. Now, uh, in this instance of Jones and Livox Quarries, the court said that the man's negligence was so much mixed up with his injury that it cannot be dismissed as mere history. His dangerous position on the vehicle's tow bar was one of the causes of his damage. At common law, a plaintiff was not held to the same standard of care as the defendant when you were considering contributory negligence. However, the Civil Liability Act under Section 5R has significantly modified that, and the provisions pertaining to contributory negligence now require the same standard of care to be applied to the plaintiff as that of the defendant. Now, there's been a lot of academic commentary on this idea of the same standard of care being applied to the plaintiff and that being somewhat nonsensical. The effect of Section 5R subsection 2 is that when the court considers contributory negligence, it must consider the same factors of Section 5B of the Civil Liability Act in terms of breach and 5C. Boral Bricks and Cosmetis number 2 is a good case on point for this. Now, look, it's a difficult area of law, and Justice Beasley, uh, who at the time was the Chief Justice, made comment in Grills and Leighton Contractors in 2015 that whilst the same inquiry of Section 5B breach must be applied to plaintiffs when we're determining a failure to take reasonable care for contributory negligence, the relevance and weight of each section in that provision depends entirely on the factual circumstances. And sometimes the factors contained in Section 5B2, namely the negligence calculus, don't assist us at all in determining contributory negligence. And that makes sense really when you think about it. So when considering the standard of care that the plaintiff owes for their own safety, 
The standard is that of the reasonable person in the position of the plaintiff, based on what the plaintiff knew or ought to have known at the time. Now, whilst the standard is the reasonable person, unlike the reasonable person test in negligence, Section 5R does not prevent courts from considering the inherent personal aspects of the plaintiff that may impact on their capacity to care for their own safety from, a, from an objective standard. And uh, that's uh, put in in Section 5R2B. The best way to exemplify how this works is if we examine the cases where children or the mentally infirmed are involved. Now, in Jocelyn and Berryman, the court noted when you're determining uh, contributory negligence, the objective prospective test for reasonable care when children are involved lowers the standard of care to the age of the child. Justice McHugh, in his dissent in that case, said, the test of contributory negligence is an objective one. Contributory negligence, like negligence, eliminates the personal equation and is independent of the idiosyncrasies of the particular person whose conduct is in question. Glasgow Corporation and Muir of 1943. One exception to this rule is that, in considering whether a child is guilty of contributory negligence, the standard of care is tailored to the age of the child. It may be the law that, uh, in the case of an aged plaintiff, the standard of care is also tailored to the age of that plaintiff. Thus, when we're assessing contributory negligence for a child or an elderly person, the standard should be adjusted to take account of their age. Now, this is still an objective standard and test whereby the courts will consider what the reasonable 13-year-old child would do prospectively as against what that actual 13-year-old child subsequently did. Consider the standard of care of a nine-year-old girl who's playing with her friends in a pool. She dives in during a game and she strikes her head on the bottom of the pool, becoming a paraplegic. Uh, these sadly were the facts considered by the court in Manly Council and Burn, a 2004 Court of Appeal judgment. Now, whilst inadvertence, failure to pay attention and failure to take care were all present on the part of the plaintiff, which probably would warrant contributory negligence, the Court of Appeal considered when applying Section 5R that the lack of attention was not an uncharacteristic character of the reasonable nine-year-old girl. And therefore, the acts of the plaintiff on an objective test did not justify a finding of contributory negligence. Can you see how the adjustment of the standard to the age of the plaintiff really matters? Again, in Doubleday and Kelly, our roller skates on the trampoline case, the court considered the standard of care was to be tailored to the age of the children involved when they were assessing uh, Section 5R. Where the standard of care on contributory negligence gets sticky is when it comes to adults who have an intellectual disability. Now, theoretically, the law remains the reasonable person test and does not take into account the idiosyncrasies of the particular plaintiff, including intellectual or mental disability. Uh, however, <laughs> the town of Port Hedland and Hodder of 2012 judgment of the West Australian Supreme Court is a really interesting case. In that case, the plaintiff was a 23-year-old man with cerebral palsy. He also had impaired eyesight and some intellectual disability. He dived from some negligently placed uh, diving blocks at the local council pool and they were negligently placed because they were put right near the shallow end of the pool. He struck his head and became a paraplegic. In that judgment, the majority of the court overturned a finding of 10% contributory negligence. However, they were not unanimous on the basis on which they found this. 
Now, Chief Justice Martin, who I should note was uh, a lone ranger in this judgment in many respects, held that the standard of care should be modified for physical di disability, but not for intellectual disability. And I would note, I respectfully disagree with the majority in that aspect, and I find this aspect of the decision really difficult to reconcile with other authorities when you look at Zhang and Goldsmith. Nonetheless, Justice McClure considered that there was no contributory negligence, but found that it was still an objective standard that could take into account that could not take into account, sorry, people with intellectual disability. Justice Murphy argued that the standard, whilst objective, could be modified to account for intellectual and physical disability and should be the same standard of care as a physically or intellectually impaired defendant. <laughs> Confusing, isn't it? The net result was that the majority decision found no contributory negligence, but as for a cohesive ratio on why, we don't have any. They did hold that the plaintiff's intellectual disability should not be taken into account. That was the majority judgment when determining the standard of care for contributory negligence. So you can see that there is some disquiet amongst the bench in terms of how we adjust contributory negligence in terms of standard of care for mental disability. Now, this case should be contrasted to the decision of Goldsmith and Bissett, number three, 2015 Court of Appeal decision, where the court did take into account a nine-year-old girl's intellectual disability when they were assessing the child's standard of care, rather than assessing her standard of care for contributory negligence as that of a nine-year-old reasonable plaintiff, they actually lowered it to a five-year-old because she had an intellectual disability, which was much the same as a five-year-old girl. Again, Kelly and Beagar Valley Council, Justice Glass noted that an infant plaintiff could justifiably claim that the standard of care applicable to infants of their age was beyond their reach because of mental or physical handicap. And Smith and Zhang, 2012 Court of Appeal decision of New South Wales, in that the court took into consideration the elderly age and visual impairment of the plaintiff. So as you can see, this area is ripe for definitive determination by the High Court of Australia. Although if we go off Allen and Chadwick, it's pretty clear that we're meant to take it as an objective test and not a subjective one. Now, a word on Section uh, 5S of the Civil Liability Act. When we're discussing contributory negligence, Section 5S should also be noted and do have a look at that section. The IP committee considered a finding of 100% contributory negligence should also be possible under the civil liability legislation. And that's because of the relationship essentially between valenti, voluntary assumption of risk, and contributory negligence. Voluntary assumption of risk or valenti non fit injuria which is just simply a Latin term saying to one who assumes risk, no harm is done, is a complete defence. So it operates to be a, a total defence, not a partial defence like contributory negligence often is. And we'll discuss that further in our next podcast. But Valenti has over the years been subsumed more and more by contributory negligence because courts are much more prepared to make a finding of some culpability in percentage terms of fault by the plaintiff rather than finding on Valenti, which completely defeats a plaintiff's course of action. Um, so with that in mind, the IP committee wanted to reinvigorate Valenti as a defence and Section 5S is an attempt, attempt to do exactly that, um, but it's done in the guise of contributory negligence. Now, this section's not without some critique by the judiciary. 
it's illogical in many respects, I think, to find 100% contributory negligence because a finding of 100% contributory negligence means that whatever negligence the defendant did was not causative of the plaintiff's loss. Thus, it should be a verdict for the defendant. Uh, 100% contributory negligence means that the entire fault of the accident or the cause of the accident's damage is the plaintiff's. Um, but because a finding of contributory negligence is dependent on first finding that a defendant owed and breached a duty of care to the plaintiff, how can this be established um, if the plaintiff has then themselves been 100% contributorily negligent? Well, this anomalous reasoning was raised in the case of Weidenberg and Hoyts Corporation 1997 judgment, which found 100% contributory negligence at first instance by a plaintiff. The case went on appeal basically because uh, the argument was that this was an illogical finding. Section uh, 5S was the legislative response to try and reinvigorate the finding that was made in this case. Now, it's very rare that this section... 5S is used and where you make a finding of 100% contributory negligence. Um, however, I should note that there are cases where this has occurred and that is Adams and the State of New South Wales and Zillow, Z-I-L-O and Lane. Now, in certain instances, <clears throat> legislation requires the courts to presume a finding of contributory negligence against which the plaintiff bears the onus of displacing that presumption. Now, we call this a rebuttable presumption, and what that means is that it is assumed that there is going to be a finding of contributory negligence unless the plaintiff can prove that that assumption should not be made. So, it effectively reverses the onus of proof, I suppose, off the defendant and to the plaintiff. And there's a number of provisions in the Civil Liability Act that actually do this. Um, there is also sections in other legislation that do this, and this includes section 138 of the Motor Accidents Compensation Act, where the plaintiff has failed to wear a seatbelt, or the passenger or driver is drunk or drug affected. In that legislation, there is a presumption of a minimum of contributory negligence. So too, under the Civil Liability Act, the presumption of contributory negligence is required under Section 50, Subsection 4 of the Act. When the plaintiff is intoxicated, there's a minimal finding of 25% contributory negligence unless the plaintiff can prove that that did not materially cause or contribute to the harm suffered. So for further detail on these provisions, please have a look at pages 700 to 702 of your casebook and Sapodine has a very good um, explanation in relation to the presumptions. The next aspect to note on contributory negligence is the requirement that the plaintiff's failure to take reasonable care for their own safety must be causative of the harm. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, a plaintiff may be careless or negligent in failing to care for their own safety. But if that failure to take reasonable care did not cause or materially contribute to either the accident or the harm ultimately suffered, then no contributory negligence will be found. This is an important distinction. The contributory negligence must contribute to the harm or the damage suffered, but it's important to note that it doesn't have to actually cause the accident. Uh, for example, if we look at the case of Froome and Butcher, in that case, it was a motor vehicle accident and the plaintiff had failed to wear a seatbelt and suffered very severe injuries as a consequence of that. Now, the defendant, no doubt, was negligent in driving the vehicle and causing the accident. And the failure to wear a seatbelt by the plaintiff did not in any way cause the car accident, but it did significantly materially increase the injuries and the extent of the damage the plaintiff suffered. 
So in that instance, um, the Court of Appeal found that the plaintiff's failure to wear the seatbelt was causal of the injury and therefore contributory negligence should be found. So too, if the plaintiff's negligent conduct contributes to the cause of the accident, they'll also be found liable for contributory negligence. Now, the case on point is Very and Shoup 2015 decision of the New South Wales Court of Appeal, where the plaintiff, a 12-year-old skateboard writer, was skitching, which is riding a skateboard whilst being towed by a car. Now, the plaintiff failed to wear a helmet and suffered very significant injuries after an accident that arose. The plaintiff was found 10% contributorily negligent in that case because skitching is dangerous and he had an appreciation of the risk and the manner in which he was riding the skateboard contributed 10% to the cause of the accident. Interestingly, the plaintiff wasn't wearing a helmet while he was skitching and the court made no finding of contributory negligence because they found ultimately that the injuries suffered by the plaintiff, funnily enough, head injuries, were not caused or materially contributed to by the failure to wear a helmet. Thus, the contributory negligence stayed at 10%. It's an interesting case, but it proves the point that it, as to causation. So this highlights an important point when we're considering contributory negligence and causation of the plaintiff's acts or omissions, and that was highlighted in Podrabesek and Australian Iron and Steel. There are two factors we have to consider when we're looking at contributory negligence. Firstly, the departure of each party, plaintiff and defendant, from the reasonable person's standard of care. So that's in terms of breach. And secondly, the degree to which that departure has caused or materially contributed to either the negligent event itself or the damage that is ultimately suffered. In other words, causal potency, as it's sometimes called, or the causation element. So again, applying the same standards to the plaintiff that are expected of the defendant as best we are able to, uh, based on the particular facts and circumstances of the loss and accident. Thanks for listening to this podcast. The next one will deal with other defences available to the tort of negligence. 